We're going to kick off a series called The Pros, and The Pros is short for a term called The Prophets. Turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, as this is going to be our key verse of Scripture throughout the whole series. Chapter number 10 and verse number 41 this morning, verses 40 and 41 as we begin. I know they're also going to have it on the, the screen up there. And the Bible says, whoever receives you receives me, and this is Jesus talking. Matthew 10, verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, here's the verse I want to get to is verse 41. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is righteous, will receive a righteous person's reward. And I love that verse. It says, the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And I wanted to start out with that verse of scripture because I want you to understand how important the prophetic books in the Old Testament still are to today in the year 2014 in which we live. And as we live in the year 2014, God has great and mighty plans for the church of 2014, but it's going to take the scriptures to be made manifest in our lives to see the church become all the church is supposed to be. And I'm going to explain to you in the first part of this message why the writings of the prophets are so important. So we're jumping into a series this morning called The Pros. And as we're in this series called The Pros, the whole reason for it is to find out what the prophets we're saying to Israel and to Judah and how it's relevant for us today. I'm going to give you a brief rundown of Old Testament survey so we can get on the same landscape where we're jumping into here. You have the books of the Old Testament. You have Genesis all the way through Malachi. And the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they are, they're the books of the law. And they laid the foundation for Christ Jesus. Now, when you were a young Jewish boy, you would have to memorize those first five books of the Bible by the time you were age 12. I think it'd be great if all of our 12-year-old and youngers had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Amen? I think that'd be absolutely phenomenal. And, and if the Bible says that if that was the tradition of the Jewish people, I do believe that even our kids today can memorize Scripture at an unprecedented rate if we'll let them. You got the next books, which is Joshua through Esther, which is the history of the Jewish nation. And that's the preparation of Christ. Then you go into the poetry books, which is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, which are the poetry books, the aspiration of Christ. And then you go into the prophetic books, which is the expectation of Christ. So when Isaiah kicks off in the prophetic books all the way through Malachi, it's the expectation of Christ. They're laying the foundation. They're prophesying about the Israel and how they need a Savior, and that one Savior has to be Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And all the prophets do is talk about the need for a Savior and the expectation of Christ. And so as we begin to talk about this, as the law is the foundation for Christ, the history is the preparation of Christ, the poetry is the aspiration for Christ. The prophets are the expectation of Christ. If Christ is all throughout the Old Testament and we know Christ came and he's in the first four Gospels of the New Testament, then after that you have the post-Christ era where he is the, the substance of the whole church. He is the church. He started the church. He's the head of the church. He's the foundation of the church. And then you get into the other prophetic book, the book of Revelation, where he is the consummation of the age. And then you get into all of eternity where Christ is the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And everything in eternity is revolving around Christ. Christ is the center of everything from the time God said let light be to the very end of creation in eternity. Christ is the very center. If we begin to study that, the, the terminology in seminary is called a Christ-centered perspective or a Christocentric perspective and we need to study the Bible from a Christ-centered 
perspective. The Bible says this in Colossians 1.17, that Christ, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, what the prophets were writing about is Christ, and so we need to study what the prophets were writing about. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So without Christ, there's nothing. It's what the Bible says. And then in Revelation 13, 8, it says, the lamb who was slain before the foundation or the creation of the world. So Christ, before the foundations of the earth were ever even formed, God had already made up his mind that I will sacrifice my one and only son, Jesus, for you and for me. So if Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the consummation of all things, everything we study from the Bible should be through a Christ-centered perspective. And we've got to get some things straight. Christ has got to be more than a blimp, a blip on the history of a timeline. A lot of us, we have creation, then we go through all the Old Testament, then we got, oh, Jesus, he's in the timeline, and then we go to the New Testament. No, Christ is the Old Testament. He is Christ in the flesh. He is the New Testament. He is the consummation of the age. He is all things, because in him all things were whole together, and nothing was made without him that has made it. So this is why it is so important that we study the books of the prophets because he is what the prophets were writing about. Christ is more than a marker on the history of a timeline. Christ is the beginning and the center of everything known and unknown to man, including time, space, dimension, and everything coming out of him, thus a Christ-centered perspective. So you cannot look at the beginning of time, the end of time, Christ in the middle. you got to look at it more like a sphere, and in the middle of that sphere, the very center of it is Christ, and Christ is going out in every single direction, in every way, shape, and form, time, space, dimension, everything else. And so when we study throughout the Bible, when I preach and when I teach, I study it and I preach it and I teach it as Christ is the center of everything. Some people have asked me, Joel, you've spent a lot of time in the Gospels this year. Of course I have. Christ is the center of everything. Not what Paul wrote isn't important, not what Isaiah wrote isn't important, but I believe with all my heart in the last days of the church, we must get back to a centrality of Christ in Christ alone. And, and being a spirit-filled believer, getting back to Christ and Christ alone, Jesus said, I want to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So when I say we're getting back to Christ and Christ alone, I don't want crazy charismatic mindset to say, well, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I do too. But you can't have him without Christ. And the Holy Spirit's only going to do what the Father tells him to do anyway. And Jesus is praying to the Father on your behalf. So in this process, we've got to get back to Christ and Christ alone. And when we get Christ firmly planted as the foundation of the church, our church again, we'll see great and mighty things happen. That's why I spend so much time in the Gospels, and I love the Gospels. Since this is true, the prophets were prophesying about Jesus, and Jesus is still relevant, and, and, and so it is still relevant and important to study what the prophets were writing in the Old Testament scriptures today. Now let's jump into Isaiah. Isaiah is the elite of elites of all the prophets. Um, I would say Isaiah, if you were to pick any prophet to study, you should study Isaiah. You should study the book of Isaiah for several reasons because when you study just the layout itself of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has 66 chapters. They call it the, the miniature Bible is actually what it's called in, in seminary circles because um, it starts out and it's laid out just like the Bible is. There's 66 books in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah. Right in the middle of it, you start talking about restoration and Christ and God doing a new thing. Well, right basically in the middle of the Bible, I 
I know the middle of the Bible physically is Psalms, but you have Jesus Christ coming in, and then it talks about the restoration of Israel and the redemption of Israel. Well, that's the New Testament and what we are as a church. And so Isaiah is known for being basically a miniature version of the Bible itself. And so Isaiah is such a profound book, and he was one of the elite of the elite prophets that were taking place uh, in the history of the nation of Israel. Now, we're going to go back on a little bit of history right quick, and we're going to talk about the audience. Who is Isaiah writing to? It was written to the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. I'm going to have them throw a a picture up on the screen here in just a minute. It's going to be the the nation of Israel, and it's written to the southern part of the nation of Israel. You have Israel, and then you have Judah, and so as you go throughout the history of the church and you read the Old Testament, you're going to read, sometimes it's going to say Israel, and you're going to read sometimes and it's going to say Judah. Well, here's the thing. you got Israel, which is the top half, and Judah, which is the bottom half. Now, there were 12 sons that came together, and after Solomon, uh, King Solomon had committed all these great sins and, and did all the stuff that he did, Solomon died, and his son, Reboam, took the throne. Well, the northern ten tribes rebelled against Judah, the southern tribe, and so there was a great civil war that took place, and now you have the division of Israel and Judah until they both go into captivity, okay? So I, I know this is a, probably a little more history than you're wanting at 8.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning, but you got to stick with me because this is so important. So Isaiah, when he is writing, he is writing to the nation of Israel, the portion of Judah. He is addressing the northern part of the nation of Israel, Israel, but a lot of the stuff he addresses is for Judah because Jerusalem is in the area of Judah right there. And so as he's writing this, as you read the Old Testament, there comes a great divide in the kingdom, and you have a great split of Judah and Israel. And that happened in 926 B.C., between 926 and 922 B.C., when Reboam took over and, and, and everybody revolted. From this point on, there's two kingdoms. Now, Israel had a lot more evil kings than Judah did, and so Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Judah wasn't taken into captivity uh, until, uh, I believe it was 526. or 586 BC with the Babylonians. Now, when you read the Bible, you'll go through the history books of the Bible, and you got 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, right? Then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, all the way on through. Well, as you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, as you read them, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, that is the history of the kings of the nation of Judah. 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles is the history of the kings of the nation of Israel. So when you read those, sometimes it gets confusing because there's some overlapping and some crossing back and forth between kings and time frames and timelines, and then Israel gets taken into captivity, but then you read that Judah's still living, but aren't they the same nation? No, they were two separate nations still under the banner of Israel, but Judah became its own nation. So 1 Kings, 2 Kings is written about Judah. 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles is written about the kings of Israel. Okay, I'm a history person, so this just fascinates me. I love it. Some of y'all are like, okay, that's good. Get on with the message. We're okay. But you've got to understand why the Bible is written in the way it's written if you're going to get the Bible in full context. And so what was happening here as Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722, Judah uh, remained a free nation until 586 uh, B.C. And then the Babylonians came in and took over the, the nation of Judah. And when the Babylonians came in and took over the nation of Judah, that's when Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego came into play. And they got taken off, okay? This is where all that begins to tie in around that time frame. And so as all this takes place, you have a prophet rising up in the midst of all this whose name is Isaiah. So Isaiah comes into play in the time when Judah is still free, Israel is in captivity. Isaiah pops in on the scene as a prophet 
of the Most High God. And so some of the things that were happening in the time of Isaiah is the political standpoint of the nation of Judah and Israel. Israel had been taken into captivity. The political standpoint through most of Isaiah's ministry is Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And during this time, there was great turmoil in Judah because Israel had just been taken captive. Everybody else is freaking out in Judah saying, what are we going to do? How are we going to fight? Are we going to war? Are we not going to war? So can you imagine just as Washington, D.C. in a time of war, it seems like there's great political unrest. Isaiah is in the same place where he is alive in a time when there's great political unrest because of all the attacks on the nation of Israel from all sides. And so the Judah was about to be attacked by the Assyrians after they took over Israel, but they defeated the Assyrians. So it was a couple, almost 200 years later, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the nation of Judah and brought them into captivity. And they were in captivity until, well, all the way until the freedom that just took place not too long ago, where they established themselves as a nation again. And so throughout this process, you have Isaiah, who's a prophet of the Most High God in the midst of all this controversy. And there's great fear of being overthrown by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the contemporaries or the people who were alongside Isaiah were the other prophets of his time were Amos, Hosea, and Micah. So you can read those are some of the minor prophets or smaller prophets that the Bible talks about in that time. So who is Isaiah? Isaiah is the son of Amos. He's the son of Amos who is a a poet and a great statesman. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, the capital city. Now get this, Isaiah was highly educated in international affairs. So Isaiah was not just this holy man who sat at the temple steps saying, thus saith the Lord, you're all sinners, you're gonna die. That's not what he did. Isaiah was a highly educated man. Isaiah was well-versed in international affairs, and so he knew what was going on with, um, with, uh, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everybody else who was coming to take him. He was well acquainted with the royal court and the kings. He was in the capital city, so he was well acquainted with the kings of the time and the royal court and everybody who was there. He had connections, in other words. And as Isaiah had connections, as God begins to anoint his life, he begins to have great influence. Isaiah is called the book of salvation. The name Isaiah itself means the salvation of the Lord, or the Lord is salvation. So now when you were a prophet in that time, you weren't just proclaiming the word of God, okay? A lot of people say, oh, prophets, he's telling about Jesus. Repent, forgiveness of sins, so the wrath of God don't fall in your nation. Good, yay, he was talking about Jesus. No, the voice of the prophet was so powerful in the Old Testament that it had great influence and weight on government, on politics, on economics, on religion, and on social dynamics. So when Isaiah spoke, it caused tremors through every political organization, through every government organization, through every economic entity. They begin to say, listen, because the prophet of God is speaking, let alone the religion of the, uh, of the Jews and the social dynamics of the Jews. Now, wouldn't it be great if we, as the voice of the church today, would rise up to a point that when we speak, it has great ramification in government, in politics, in economics, and in social dynamics, and in religion across the board. It still can be that way today. The problem we've come to in America is this. We've relegated ourselves to simply being a religious institution rather than a living, breathing organism of the Almighty God. And we must, as the church, have a voice in government, have a voice in politics, have a voice in economics, have a voice in religion, and have a voice in social dynamics, right? We're amen and now, but when you go out there, some of y'all aren't even going to vote these next two weeks. 
Get out there and vote the next two weeks. If you really believe what I'm saying, get out there and vote. At least start giving yourself a voice. I believe with all my heart the church needs to rise up and have great influence in these realms. And so when you're a prophet, you have great, great influence. I say that to get to this point here, that because normal, ignorant Christianity, and I'll say that again, normal, ignorant Christianity in the word of God and how we apply in the world today will destroy the church quicker than anything else. Normal, ignorant Christianity, and what do I mean by that? I'm not calling anybody in this room stupid, okay? Don't even go there. What I'm saying is, is if we do not begin to educate ourselves in the Bible and the standpoint that Jesus took because he's the center of all things through the prophets and through the New Testament, if we do not begin to educate ourselves in the word of God, we will never have a voice that will have influence in government, politics, economics, social dynamics, and religious organizations. So we must no longer be ignorant of the Bible. And we must no longer be ignorant of our stand as a believer. And I'm going to say all that to say this, which will upset several in this room on both sides of both parties, okay? All the right-wing conservatism isn't necessarily right. All the left-wing liberalism isn't necessarily right. We must begin to be well-versed and knowledge in the Word of God to get a true standing of a Bible standpoint. Forget right-wing, left-wing, and everything else. Let's be believers in Jesus once again. And in that, it does mean helping the poor. And in that, it does mean standing up for the right and the just, okay? And so we as a church must begin to rise, which brings us to my first point. Everybody say, time to rise. It's time for, I believe, this to take place in our life. It's time for Isaiah's, me and you, I'm calling us Isaiah's, that have great influence in the realm that we're in. It's time for us as Isaiah's, to rise with the voice of knowledge, but more than that, a voice of knowledge that is anointed. Here's the key. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't come under the anointing of God with all that knowledge, that knowledge is useless. Listen, I can have all the seminary education, a doctorate, I can get five more doctorates, but if there's not an anointing that rests upon Joel, it's useless. So it's not just time for Isaiah to rise with knowledge, it's time for Isaiah to rise up with an anointed word of God and knowledge. And see God use us in every dynamic that this world has to offer. I like to say it like this. It's time for us to be anything but normal. <laughs> That's an easier way to say it. Forget all the education and anointing. It's time for us to be anything but normal. I'm ready to be abnormal. I'm ready for the Spirit of God to fall on this church and, there, and people look and say, that church is different. That means you're abnormal. <laughs> I pray that you look at me and say, That's an abnormal preacher. I don't want to be the normal preacher. <laughs> I want to be a preacher that has knowledge, but a knowledge that's anointed by God, especially in the last days. So everybody say, I want to be anything but normal. And I pray God would make us anything but normal. If you want to be anything but normal, get ready. I'm fixing to tell you how. It's time to rise. And that's the first point of today's message, time to rise. And the Bible says this in Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, two covered his face, two covered his feet, and with two they flew. And they called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's a good, that's a good thing to say right there. If you don't know what else to say, just start saying that. I mean, if you say what the angels say, you're not going to go wrong because they're commanded on what to say, right? So, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6. And it says, at that the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. 
and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am a lost man, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The one seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal he had taken from the, uh, from the altar, he touched my mouth with it, with it and said, behold, he, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And then he said, go and say to all the people. Now I wanted to add that last verse in there because so many times we read Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, and we stop. It's like, oh, he had a great experience. That's awesome. If an experience stops with an experience, it's a useless experience. The experience didn't stop with an experience. The experience led to God said, who am I going to send? And Isaiah said, pick me, pick me, pick me. Amen. A, a lot of times in the church, God says, who am I going to send? And everybody's like, don't, don't pick me. I got other stuff going. God, my schedule, you know my schedule. God, why are you picking on me? I did something last week for your kingdom. It's not what Isaiah said. When you have an experience that stops with an experience, it's useless. But when you have an experience that says, here I am, Lord, send me. That's something that's anointed by Almighty God like never before. It's time to rise, and it's time to rise. It's time for Isaiah to ride with, with knowledge, but more than that, a voice of knowledge that's anointed. And listen, Isaiah starts out, like many other, pro, other prophetic books, simply doing this. When you read Isaiah 1 through 5, you're going to be like, why did I start reading this? It's like most other prophetic books. It just starts out listing the sin and guilt of a nation. I mean, it's just sin after sin, guilt after guilt, sin after sin, guilt after guilt. And by, by the time you get to chapter 4, it's like, Dang, these people were messed up. But then Isaiah 6 happens, which transforms the Bible as we know it. Isaiah 6 happens, and kind of like Damon said when we, were, when we were honoring Hunter this morning, when Isaiah 6 happened, a young man had an experience with God. And when his experience took place, he looked up and he said, I saw the Lord seated high on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And I saw angels flying back and forth. And they were shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he said, at that moment, I knew I was a man of unclean lips. And being a man of unclean lips, the angels that were flying back and forth took a coal from the altar and touched the lips. That altar, it's the same altar we're talking about on Wednesday night, the bronze altar. That's the heavenly bronze altar that the angel flying back and forth saw, took the coal, touched Isaiah's lips. Because we know that the bronze altar meant judgment against sin. And when he touched Isaiah's lips, the sin of Isaiah was gone at that moment. And so as that was taking place, Isaiah had an experience with God. Now listen, he was in an experience, you are a witness to something. Now we all love the verse in Isaiah, or Acts chapter number 1 and 8, and it says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and all the ends of the earth. We love that, and we think the term witness means go run out and tell everybody about Jesus. That is not what the term witness means. The term witness means that you have witnessed or seen something or experienced something that you can then go tell about. A lot of people have never had a witness to something, therefore you're telling about it. People just see it as dead religion. But when you have a witness to something, just like in the court of law, they say, are there any witnesses? Is there anybody who saw this person get murdered? You had a bad experience. Well, the Bible's saying the same thing. Can I get a witness? Can I get somebody to see what I'm trying to do? And when you see what I'm trying to do, you have an experience with what I'm doing, then you can go tell it because you personally had a witness of it. It's time for the church to get a witness. You remember the old school? Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? You ever heard that? 
It's saying, can I get somebody to see what God's doing? And God wants people to see what he's doing and get a witness. And listen to what Isaiah witnessed. Isaiah just didn't see something. He saw something. He heard something. He felt something. He smelled something. And he tasted something. If you're going to testify about something and you go to the court of law and you say, well, I saw this. They're going to be like, all right, that's a good witness. But if you go to the court of law and say, I saw this, I heard this, I smelt this, I touched this, and I tasted this, all on that scene, that's going to be undeniable witnessing because you have experienced it on every single level. God wants you to experience him on every single level. Have you ever wondered why God gave you five senses? Because he wants to be more than just a God that you see. He wants to be a God that you see, feel, taste, touch, smell, and have have a relationship with. He wants you to witness him on every level, in every front. Listen to what happened to Isaiah. He said, the first thing he did is he said, I saw the Lord. I saw it. I saw Jesus. I saw the Lord seated high on the throne. If you just get a glimpse of the glory and the splendor of the kingdom of God, you're never going to be saved. So you're thinking, oh God, just open my eyes and let me see. Why don't you just start seeking out who God, God is? Start seeking out who God is and you'll experience God. He didn't just see something, he heard something. And he said, I heard the angels as they called to one another and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He felt something. He felt the whole foundations of the building he was in and the thresholds begin to shake. What if God showed up in such a phenomenal way here that the whole building began to quake? Some of y'all freak out and run out the building. I'm not even playing. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, what was that? Some of y'all get mad. It's like, I can't believe somebody disrupted the anointing in the place. Some of y'all, if Jesus showed up right now, you'd be like, I can't believe he's walking down the middle aisle of church. He is the church. <laughs> um, he is the church. He smelled something, the smell of smoke. He smelled it. He says there was smoke that filled the place. And then he tasted what it was like to be forgiven, to be cleansed. He tasted it. Listen, church, at that moment, Isaiah became a witness to who Almighty God is. And so all that knowledge he had of living in the kingdom of Judah, in the city, the capital city of Jerusalem, was great. But now it wasn't just knowledge. It was knowledge that when the angel touched his lips, it became anointed knowledge. And so that anointed knowledge began to transform the rest of the history of time for all eternity as he began to prophesy about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So it's time to rise as a church. What am I calling us to rise to? I'm calling us to rise to this. To rise and have a witness of Jesus. To rise and have a witness of Jesus. Don't leave here and tell somebody all about how Jesus died on the cross. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, that's heresy. No, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Leave here and tell people what you've experienced because he died on the cross. Everybody's heard Jesus died for their sin. Everybody's heard that. But because you haven't acted like a witness that Jesus really died for your sin, they don't care about hearing how Jesus died for their sin, your sin. They want to see how Jesus died for your sin and it changed you. They want to see the person who, hey, Jesus died for my sins and I hadn't picked up an alcohol bottle in 21 days. Jesus died for my sin and I've dropped the nicotine habit. I don't even have it anymore. Jesus died for my sins. I ain't turned down the pornography website on the computer in a month. Now, come on, y'all better get some amens on that. That or I'm either stepping on a lot of toes really quick. I became a witness to who God is, and my marriage was instantaneously restored because my husband or wife saw a change in me. Oh, that'll change the world. And it's time for us to rise so we can go be a witness to who God's called us to be. Many times what people say is not anointed because they're trying to live and talk about something they've never been a witness to. We're trying to live and talk about something we've never seen or experienced. So it's time to rise. Everybody say, it's time to restore. 
It's kind of hard to compound 66 books into one 30-minute message, okay? So as we're compounding 66 books or 66 chapters, I guess I should say, into one 30-minute message, Isaiah is broken up into this. It's time to that Isaiah saw there need to be a rising of a Savior. Just like all through the Old Testament, it's the rising of Jesus Christ to have the culmination when he was born. It's not just time for us to rise, it's time for us to restore. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19 and 25 says this, Remember not the former things. Consider not the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Everybody say new thing. Now it springs forth. Everybody say right now. See, a lot of people read Isaiah and say, oh, God's doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. That was great for them back then. No, all you got to say, because we said if you receive a prophet, because he's a prophet, you'll receive the prophet's reward. So what Isaiah said back then is still relevant to now. And all you got to begin to say, I believe in my life right now. God is doing a new thing, and right now it springs up. Okay, some of y'all just missed your new thing. Some of you just missed it because you're like, wow, that's good. But that's when you say it's time for my new thing. See, the new thing is what God's trying to give you so you can be a witness. He goes on to say this. He goes on to say, God is, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Verse 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Woo. God says, don't remember your past. I'm doing a new thing right now. If you'll actually perceive it and see that I'm doing it and grab hold of it, I'm going to make you the man I've called you to be. I'm remembering your sins no more, and I'm blotting out all your transgressions. New day, new start, fresh start right now. Now, come on. That's some good stuff. Now, here's the key to restore. Isaiah is trying to restore Judah to back to a relationship with God Almighty. Listen. To restore means this, to put or bring back into existence or use. To put or to bring back into existence or use. See, some of y'all are in here with such a bad history of your life that you're sitting here saying, God could never use me. Wrong. He just said, I'm restoring you. And that means I'm pulling you off the sidelines. I'm pulling you out of a drunken stupor. I'm pulling you out of adultery. I'm pulling you out of pornography. I'm pulling you out of alcoholism. And I'm putting you in a place of use once again. If you'll believe me that I remember your sins no more. God's trying to do something with a people that's broken. Listen, by and large, the church, the people in the church are broken. And because you're broken, you think you have no use. That hidden sin that's in the back, darkest, deepest corner of the closet that you keep it under lock and key that nobody will ever find out about, get ready. God says, I know you're broken deep on the inside, but I'm fixing to restore you to use for my kingdom once again. I'm fixing to use you in the kingdom of God. But you got to start thinking like God thinks. And if God's forgotten about your sins and remembers them no more, you better start quit thinking about your sins of the past and start looking at the new thing God's doing now because God's in the restoration business bringing things that are out of service back into service for the use of his kingdom. And that's what Isaiah is trying to say to Judah. Get ready, Judah. God wants to use you as a mighty nation once again. He's remembering your sins no more if you'll turn to him. He's bringing you back to use and restoration. Can you tell? I, I can tell you why the gospel is so precious and amazing and if we'll present it just like that everybody would want to get saved but here's the problem Isaiah says this remember not the former things Paul says this the old things have passed away God's making all things new the church says God's mad at you God's upset with you you better not go to God because he's going to strike you down do you see the difference between the greatest prophet Isaiah the greatest apostle and the apostle Paul and the church today 
It's time for the church to bring a message of restoration, putting broken people back into use for the kingdom of God. Because listen, the church is simply a bunch of puzzle pieces that God's putting together. But if you omit yourself from use and service of the kingdom of God, you're not letting God complete the puzzle because you think your sins are greater than the work that God's about to do. Now that's a heavy word. Your sins are not that big. Your sins are not that powerful. Your sins will not hold you back any longer. I declare it in the name of Jesus, you're set free right now to do the work of God. Somebody needs to be set free this morning. God is restoring you to use. He's restoring you to use. So get ready. God is in the restoration business, putting things back into use, back into existence that the world's put up on a shelf. The true message of God is really this, where the church says you better repent or God's gonna get you. No, the true message of the Bible is this. God is love. God forgives. God longs for you. God is patient with you. God bears all things. God believes in you. God endures all things. And God's love never fails and it never ends. Now, does that give us a right to go on acting like an idiot? Of course not. You can't go acting like an idiot any longer when you've had an experience and been a witness to something. See, here's the, here's the, here's the problem in the church. Well, I'm just gonna watch them and wait till they fall again. <laughs> Listen, listen to this. When you have a true witness in an encounter, you're not going to want to go back to the sinful life that you were once in. You're not. God will deliver you. And I don't believe in the term recovering alcoholic. I believe God can deliver, set you free, where you're not still battling with an illness. I believe he can set you free. And so God not only calls us to rise, and God calls us to restore but it's also time to redeem. Isaiah 53 says this, For he grew up like a young plant, a root out of dry ground. He had no form, he had no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And he's prophesying about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, considered a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely Christ has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by him. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought peace or the punishment that it took to bring peace in our lives. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's the message of Isaiah. Verse six goes on to say, get this, we all like sheep, we've gone astray. Every one of us have turned away from God to our own way. But get this, the Lord God has laid the sin of all of us, the iniquity of all of us, on Jesus. Now listen, it's not time, just time for us to rise and restore, it's time for us to redeem. The term redeem means to buy back. The, the name Isaiah means the salvation is from God. God paid the price for you to be redeemed, to be bought back. I'm gonna phrase it like this, and please don't take the analogy that I'm using as a cheap way to present the gospel. It's the best analogy I could come up with, and it's not a very good one. If somebody gives you a gift card that the price has been paid, for you to get the benefit of that gift card, what do you gotta go do? You gotta go use it. When you bless me with an amazing Starbucks gift card, thank you very much. <laughs> when you give me a Starbucks gift card, if that gift card sets in my Jeep and I never redeem it, I'll never get use out of it and I'll never get my coffee. What I have to do with that gift card that somebody else paid for, I have to bring it to the person who has the goods that I need and I gotta give it to them and in return they'll give me what they had at no cost to myself because somebody else has already paid the price. Listen to this, God paid the price. Jesus is your gift card. 
When you come to heaven and you say, God, I'm not worthy to be here. I have no money to buy coffee to get into heaven. But I got this Jesus card. And it's not just a Jesus card. This Jesus has washed me. He's cleansed me. And I put my trust in the blood of Jesus. I'm going to turn this in. And I'm going to redeem the card. And when I give that card back to God, God says, I know this card because I approved it. And because you're redeeming, you're putting to use what I paid for. Get ready what your redemption is. It's all the kingdom of heaven. The job of the church is to rise as a witness. It's to restore and put people back into use. And it's to be deliverer of the redemption gift card, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world so that other people can come to the gates of heaven one day, not because they're so good, but because redemption has been paid for by Jesus Christ, the one and only son of the living God. And today, many of you have this card of Jesus in your back pocket. That's instead of redeeming it, you're still carrying your sins. Instead of redeeming it, you're still carrying your problems. Instead of redeeming it, you're letting your marriage go to hell. Instead of redeeming it, you're letting your kids run off and be children of the world rather than children of God. Instead of redeeming it and declaring the blood of Jesus Christ that paid for it, you keep it in your back pocket and pull it out when it looks pretty. And the problem is, you don't pull out the redemption card on Sunday morning when you come to church. You pull it out every single day of the week when you're in the lost and dying world. Because listen, it's really not hard to live right in church. You're in the setting of anointing, the setting of faith, the setting of good preaching, the setting of great worship. It's not hard to live right in church. It's hard to live right out in the world. So when you go out in the world, you pull the cord and you look at it and say, God, I'm, I, I need redemption. You bought me back. The job of the church is not only to be redeemed, but to deliver redemption, deliver Jesus to a lost and dying world. The end of every message throughout this series, I'm going to do something called the prose point. What's the prophet's point of all 66 chapters of the prophet Isaiah? Mitch, if your worship team wants to begin to come. The prophet's point is this. Born again happens the day you make a decision to follow Christ Jesus. Listen to me. Born again happens to make you de- the day you make a decision to follow Christ Jesus and commit yourself to him. Salvation is something you should experience every single day the rest of your life. There is a huge difference between born again and salvation. Born again is the initial day when Paul says the old things are gone, the new things have come. All this is from God. Born again is that day. Every day the rest of your life you should experience salvation. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should experience the blessing of God in your life. You should experience the healing power of God in your life. Salvation should take place every single day the rest of your life. The point that the prophet Isaiah is making throughout the whole Bible is this. Salvation is to rise, it's to restore, it's to redeem, it's to bring a people back to Jesus Christ. It is not simply who we are, but what we bring to the world. Salvation cannot be just who we are. For too long, the church has just said, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. Praise God you're saved. But salvation cannot just be who you are. Salvation must be but what we bring out to a lost and dying world. I'm glad you're saved, but I'm, I'm very upset that your grandmother's not saved that's on her deathbed. I'm glad you're saved, but that nephew you've been praying for, keep praying, but go bring it to him. I'm glad you're saved, but it can't just be a label of who we are any longer. It must be what we bring to a lost and dying world. And salvation isn't just, oh, I received Jesus. Salvation is rising, it's restoring, and salvation is redeeming.